Welcome to From What If to What Next, the podcast that likes to ask what if and to then figure out how we might move the ideas that then emerge towards becoming a reality. In these times when the imaginations of those making the key decisions that affect all of our futures appear to have atrophied, this podcast is that most precious of things, a what-if space, a space where there are no right answers, no limits, no cynic sitting in the wings muttering, that'll never work. Here we create the conditions for you to glimpse a different future, to peep past the curtain to a future that looks infinitely more delicious than the one currently on offer. Today I'm thrilled by where we're going to go and who we're going to go there with. Ever since I first met Kate Rayworth and encountered her concept of donut economics, I was hooked. Here was a model for the economy of the future that made sense, was clear to understand, gorgeously visual, and which was a brilliantly skillful tool for unlocking all kinds of what-if questions. I often say that one of the great things about imagination is that it thrives when it's given limits, and donut economics embodies that. You identify the space we need to occupy in order for life to continue on the planet, and within that, as I've observed in workshops about this approach, the imagination is ignited. Donut economics is rapidly moving from the fringe to the mainstream. Amsterdam in Holland was recently confirmed as the first donut city, using the model to underpin its economic development strategy. And so today our what-if question is, what if every city used donut economics? I'm joined by the two very best people to help me answer that question. Kate Rayworth is an economist focused on making economics fit for the 21st century. Her book Donut Economics, Seven Ways to Think Like a 21st Century Economist, is an international bestseller that has been translated into 18 languages. She's co-founder of the Donut Economics Action Lab, which works with changemakers to turn donut economics from a radical idea into transformative action. She teaches at Oxford University and Amsterdam University of Applied Sciences. Marika van Dornik is an alderman for sustainability and urban development for the city of Amsterdam. From 2006 until 2014, she was a member of the Municipal Council for the Green Left Party, of which she was the party chair since 2009. Before that, she worked for different organisations focusing on refugees and women's rights. She's one of the key people working with Kate and the Donut Economic Lab team to bring the donut model to Amsterdam. You're both so welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So I'd like to start with how we usually begin this podcast. And I'd like to invite you to get comfortable, to close your eyes. And I invite those listening to do the same thing too. And to imagine that it is 2030. Over the past 10 years, the world has undergone a remarkable transition. Starting with Amsterdam in 2020, the concept of cities redesigning their economies so that no one falls short of life's essentials, but we also manage to stay within the Earth's planetary boundaries, is now entirely commonplace and has catalyzed an amazing transformation, economic, social, cultural, ecological. The change that has taken place is profound. Could you take us on a walk around Amsterdam in that future? How is it? What does it sound like, look like, smell like, feel like? Take us on a walk inside your imagination, a day in the life in Donut Amsterdam. Marika? 
Oh yes, I would love to take you there. If you if you imagine walking through the canals of Amsterdam, you would uh, you would see, hardly see any cars because the big public space would be so much greener than it is right now. All the space that our cars are taking up right now have been replaced mostly by pedestrians, but also with cyclists and bikes. But mostly what you see that it's more relaxed. It's more relaxed because there's less hassle, because the green also invites people to see the city in another way. So you have a more relaxed city, which is so much greener. And you can see it on, on the pavement, which is not only concrete anymore, but the pavement will also be pots of small flowers or small plants. So not only the city is green because of the parks and the trees, but also the smaller parts of greens that makes it more enjoyable to be there, but also helps us to combat the heat in the city, especially in, in the summertime. So it has a nicer environment that it also helps with the feeling of hurry or not, because the green makes you more relaxed. This green is, will also be on rooftops next to lots and lots of solar panels. Actually, you won't see an empty roof anymore in Amsterdam. All roofs are, are covered either in green or with solar panels. The other thing that you imagine if you see the shops, you see much less stuff in the shops and you see much more places where you can have your stuff repaired. If you see girlfriends meet each other, they won't say, oh, you got this new dress, but they will say, oh, you got the same dress that you wore last <laughs> week, but now you've made a little change about it. And that's so fancy and that's so fashionable. And actually people are praised for using their materials over and over again by making little adjustments. So it's still fashionable, but it's the same. And that's, I think, the major change that we have gone through in the past 10 years is that we don't care about stuff to buy and throw away anymore, but we care about the things that we have. We cherish them, we repair them, we make sure that they will last for a very long time. And one of the reasons why we could do this is that we made this new law that actually the producers of materials have the obligation to make things last and make things repairable instead of make things to be easily thrown away. The things that people do are valued in a completely different way. So it's not like you have your job and you have a lot of spare things that you do next to that. But those things blur into each other because there's a much stronger social foundation for people in their budget system. So work is not the only thing they do anymore. That's not the only thing that is valued anymore. And the caretaking of their children or their parents or their friends is not like a thing that you do next to your job, but you can combine it with your job. And it's equally valued both in money as in validation of uh, of other people. The other thing is that you see a much more clearer sky. People with asthma, people with uh, respiratory problems will have much less of these problems because they live in a clean city which doesn't have this air pollution that we have right now. That's kind of the first few things that I see if I think about wandering around in Amsterdam in 10 years' time. Glorious. Thank you so much. Kate? So I'm going to build right on that because I I, I want to be there too. <laughs> These streets that because we removed the cars and we brought back two feet and two wheels and scooters and cargo bikes, there's the sense that instead of bustling our way down a high street, we would browse our way down. There's just so much to stop and see a little bit of street food here. Oh, what's this? You pop up little in you know little enterprise out of the back of a cargo bike. A more kind of carnival or festival feeling just every day in the streets where we move. I, I love the idea of Marika saying, you know, every rooftop, it's harvesting energy. So it's either harvesting energy through being a green rooftop and harvesting it in natural energy catching or through solar energy. And I love the idea that every building will have on it 
a little dashboard that's telling us the metrics of that building in real time. And what it's telling us is not, oh, this was built to such and such construction standard and it was built to be energy efficient. It's telling us in real time that building sequestering and is it as generous as the wildland next door so let's go to the nearby natural wildland and say how much carbon dioxide does this land sequester this forest how much water does it store after storm how much biodiversity does it house how much does it cool the air from the treetops to the forest floor and let's aim to make our city match that vision. So there'll be a little dashboard on the board of every building saying, yep, this building is sequestering carbon dioxide like the forest next door, because it's built actually of reused timbers that have been a part of the city's circular policy. So the city's got a goal of being 100% circular city by 2050. And that means already in, in 10 years time, going to be well on the way there. You're going to actually be able to go around the city and find storage places for materials from buildings they don't just get demolished and taken away there's going to be places in the city that and that there's policy beginning now where is this going to be located so that to build a building you go and see what's there what's already there to be reused and we're going to be using re in our language we're going to be rebuilding refurbishing remaking reusing recreating reinventing so re is going to be a big part of our language I also want to take us from the feeling of being in the city to the implications of the city for the rest of the world, because that's a part of donut thinking. So Amsterdam is actually a city that should be really proud of the fact that there are many change makers there who are very aware that the global supply chains on which all of our lives depend, whether it's for food or electronics or chocolate or clothing, at down the end of those supply chains are many people who are leading very exploited lives, paid very, very low wages. And Amsterdam's a place where people have said, you know what, it doesn't have to be this way. In fact, we're going to prove it can be different. It's the home of Tony's Chocoloni, chocolate that's determined to be made free of slave labor, modern slavery, child slavery. It's the home of Fairphone that was set up as a campaign to show that mobile phones can actually be made in a far more equitable, just and, and sustainable way. Uh, Moye coffee showing that you can actually roast coffee in the home country. So these businesses, which at the moment are still a bit niche in the world and, and celebrated in Amsterdam, they're just going to become the way things are done because legislation is going to start changing and saying, you know what, we should recognize these pioneers are creating the new normal. The city will be procuring it through its own supply chain, for its own office supplies, its own staff uniforms, following the pattern that these companies have established. And then I want to say that we'd also think about food, food in the city, where it's coming from. It's going to be much more local. You'll even be able to tell a story about where, you know, did it come from the rooftop of two buildings away or did it come from um, just around the city or did it come from worldwide? It will probably come from all of those places, but with a lot more awareness and intent and care about how the food is then regenerated, recycled, because that organic treasure that comes out of our food and turns into food waste. We call it waste, but there's no such thing as waste. Waste is food itself for the next system. So it gets returned to the land and returned to the soils. And we're much more aware that we're part of cycles. 20th century cities were built in a very linear way. Stuff comes in, we consume it, and then the waste goes out. Don't really ask where it came from. Really don't want to know where it goes. To be a circular city, which again, Amsterdam has in its DNA now, let's recognize we're part of food cycles, nutrient cycles, carbon cycles, water cycles, and much more of the former waste is now staying in the city. Electronics materials are gonna be urban mining. What's here? What can we turn it into? Some of it will become mobile phones again. Some of it will become funky art and sculpture, and we will 
celebrate in a more intense way reusing materials. So I think there's going to be a real cultural renaissance as well. And we, we already know it. You know, many people like starting coffee shops in an old industrial space. And they say, no, no, keep the industrial field, keep those steel girders, keep that old brick wall. That's what gives it character. And we're going to tap deeper into that cultural aesthetic and celebrate and laugh the fact that you're going to have really old building materials next to brand new ones. And these buildings, if you look up at the rafters, you'll see that they're not glued shut and therefore have to be demolished to take them down. They're click open. So the buildings will be bolted, clicked, clamped, and you'll see the workings of how these materials are held together. And in looking at this building, you'll see its future potential. It's going to become something else. One day it will be disassembled. So this much more fluid sense of our present occupation of earth and the materials, but these are going to be repurposed and it's a continual story. Mm -hmm. Wow. I often say one of the main aims of this podcast is to create a longing for uh, for a very different future. And I think you've both certainly done that. Thank you so much. Kate, maybe the best place to start for people listening who don't know what donut economics is, is maybe you might just give us your best concise definition. Okay, so I was a student of economics in the late 20th century and deeply frustrated what I've learned. The shape of progress in the 20th century is an ever-rising line. It's GDP up, 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 and it's just more, 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 more. No matter how rich we already are, apparently the solution to all our ills and the success of all our lives lies in yet more GDP. And I just rejected that and walked away from it and wanted to be part of the movement rewriting economics. And I ended up responding to this phenomenal work by Earth system scientists called Planetary Boundaries, recognising that we need to live within the life-supporting systems of planet Earth. When I first saw their diagram, I responded to it by doodling on it. And the doodle came out looking like a donut. So ridiculous though it sounds, it's the one donut that turns out to be good for us. And kudos to Amsterdam for taking it on. So imagine a donut with a hole in the middle. The aim is to get into the donut. Leave nobody in the hole in the middle. That's a place where people are falling short of the essentials of life without the food and healthcare and transport and social equity and political voice and income that every person has a claim to. So leave no one in the hole, get everyone you know, enough resources so that we're in that donut-shaped space itself. But of course, as you said, creativity comes from boundaries. We have to recognize there are boundaries on both sides. There's an inner social boundary, but there's an outer ecological boundary. If we use Earth resources too much, too inefficiently, too foolishly, too wastefully, we push ourselves over these planetary boundaries, Earth's life-supporting systems, and we begin to break down the very life-supporting planet on which we depend. So we cause climate breakdown, and we acidify oceans, and we create a hole in the ozone layer, and we destroy ecosystems. So we need to stay within this ecological ceiling of life. And that means that the shape of progress has changed. It's not this ever-rising line of growth measured in GDP up, up, up. It's balance and it has this sense almost of a heartbeat of thriving between the inner and the outer. And the metrics are social. Do you have the food and water and political voice and participation and transport and housing that you need? Are we respecting Earth's life-giving systems? Are we respecting the carbon cycle? Are we respecting rivers and lakes' ability to regenerate? Are we keeping healthy oceans? Are we renewing the soil? Are we ensuring that the materials that we let loose into the environment are natural and life-supporting, not toxic and life-destroying? Then these two boundaries meet the needs of all within the means of the living planet. The space in between that's a donut-shaped space, this is where we can play and invent and create 
and absolutely blow our minds with the possibilities that we've barely given ourselves the chance to tap into yet. Wonderful. Thank you, Kate. So brilliant. Marika, could you give us, could you tell us a bit about Amsterdam's journey towards becoming a donut city? How did it begin? How did you build the momentum and the political will towards this becoming a reality? Amsterdam already for the past, I think, five but even more years have been looking at what can we do to have a circular economy. And we have been looking very much at circular projects. So what can we do to have less waste? What can we do to reuse things again? And quite often we came up with great ideas, but it kept on being individual projects where people, entrepreneurs or young people who were very interested in that would do. But it didn't bring it further. It was just a collection of projects becoming more and more projects. We needed to renew our circular strategy. My idea was is that we had to take it much further than just instead of using new stuff, using reused stuff, but really make a paradigm shift, really have to look at it from a different side. And at the same time that I started as an elder person in, in the city government, the people working on the circular economy of Amsterdam were in contact with Kate and say, this is the kind of holistic approach that we need. It's not by just changing one system to the other, because that would be the same as within the energy transition that we just say, okay, we used to have fossil fuels and now we take biofuels and everything stays the same because that's what a lot of people think that the energy transition is about. But actually, if you really want to have a transition to a more sustainable world, there's much more you need to change instead of just changing one fuel to another fuel. It's actually really changing the whole structure that is built upon that. Kate was just explaining what we actually need is a renewable, completely regenerating system. The reason why I'm so determined to have this structure change instead of just having a material change or a change of materials is that if, if you want this energy transition to make sense to people with low incomes, people who are scared about what it will cost if they don't have their fuels anymore, you also have to make it into social change. You have to make sure that the energy transitions that we're having is part of also a social transition that we have to go through. And then we learned about the donuts. And then we thought this brings it all. This brings the framework of the changes that we have to make. So we also have social problems in Amsterdam, but quite often are combined with the ecological problems that we have. For example, in Amsterdam, we count our GPD by the price of the housing, which is strange because Amsterdam is almost too expensive for everybody. You know, it's almost inaccessible for people to start living here because you can't pay the rent, you can't pay for the mortgage in a place in Amsterdam. And actually we use that that figure of the house pricing in Amsterdam as saying, oh, we're doing so good, we're a very wealthy city. But we're not a wealthy city if we can't provide the people living in this, in, in this city with affordable housing. So you need to take those two together. So this is why we started working with Kate and asked her to develop the city donut of Amsterdam and to see how strong our social foundation is and to also see where the gaps are in our social foundation. And one of them is indeed this price of housing and is indeed the fact that we have too little green parts in Amsterdam. And it is also that there's 
like many big cities, there's too much loneliness and depression in, in the city. So we need to take that social part within the big fundamental changes that we have to make in order to become also an ecological sustainable city. So one of the things that we're working right now on is to combine the energy transitions that we're going through that has been going on for longer in Amsterdam to combine that with the social transition that we have to go through and to see what actually the effects are of what the city of Amsterdam is doing towards its own inhabitants, towards its own environment, but also towards the social situation of the people who, what Kate was already saying, who are actually making our clothes or making our phones or digging the materials that we are using, but also what it does to the pollution in other parts of the world. And to make sure that we actually have this city portrait and we can use it as a mirror and say, okay, this is where we stand. This is how we pollute the world and this is how we treat our inhabitants, but also other people. So this is why we did it, but also how we want to do it. And that's by having the city portrait, by monitoring how we're doing, and by also inviting people of Amsterdam to see what they need in order to live within the donut and to see if they can work together with the city of Amsterdam to live within the donut. So Kate, could you give us a sense of what, say, over the next five years, becoming a donut city will actually mean in practice? So, so Marika's given us a, a sense of that. But how, over, say, in the next five years, will this process unfold? What, what will it entail? When we create a donut city portrait for a city, we ask an overarching question, which is how can our city be a home to thriving people in a thriving place while respecting the well-being of all people and the health of the whole planet. And so there are four angles there we need to think about. The first is around this question of what does it mean to be thriving people here? And that question can only be answered by the people of the city. They are the ones who can say what thriving means for us in this time with our history, with our culture, with our diversity. And so that to me is a prompt for city conversations, whether it's citizens assemblies or continual dialogue and citizens participatory networks that engaging with the city in that conversation of what is our vision? Who do we want to be? Who do we want to be by 2030? And that's about setting targets and a vision and then looking at how can we start to match those targets. Uh, I really like the point Marika's making about housing, which in Amsterdam, as in many high-income cities now, actually, and, or many sort of popular cities, let's say, people want to buy a place or come and stay. You've got Airbnb, you've got your international investors, and the price of housing starts to just to go through the roof. And as she says, it's it's an economist's metric of city success, and it's a social metric of real problem because it's a human right and it's an investment luxury, and you're caught between the two. So how can the city put in place policies that ensure that housing actually meets the social needs and the people's needs and the community's right to live there well? So it's about matching the city's aspiration for a good life with concrete policies that start to put this into place. And, and we're seeing cities all over the world starting to say, well, actually, we don't allow foreigners to buy a second home here, or we have a high second home tax, or we have all sorts of policies that never used to be there recognizing that housing is a fundamental human right as well as a luxury investment good and we need to make sure it's more of the first than the second how can our city be a thriving place within its natural habitat and to me the rise of cities looking to the wild land in which they're embedded and saying if we really want to belong here 
We need to belong with nature here and we need to learn. And this is the work of Janine Benyus. Really. We need to take nature as our mentor and our measure. So actually getting to know the wildland next door and getting to know how its genius of place works, how it thrives, how it survives here, how it will adapt to climate change, how it will be resilient to impacts that haven't happened before. How can we learn the best from nature and turn those into city policy? So you'll have a lot more ecologists advising and biomimicry architects working together with them saying, aha, this is how nature cools the air here. This is how nature is resilient against high tides. How can we learn here and build that into the architecture of this place? So you'll see new designs and new kinds of landscapes and greenscapes and architecture that we haven't seen before because they're mimicking nature. We'll see the rise, I think, of much more recognition that Amsterdam, and I'm sitting in the city of Oxford or the UK or nearly all European cities are embedded in a history of colonial power with long histories of connections all over the world. And I think in this time of recognition of racial injustice, this is a really important part of the story, recognizing that historical legacy and saying, what is it that our city now needs to do to recognize what it's been built from and how can we repair those longstanding exploitative relationships and turn them into relationships of respect? Again, it's this global social lens of how do we ensure that our city respect the well-being of people worldwide and taking much more care and attention and responsibility for the procurement and purchases through global supply chain. And I think shops and companies that are doing business in a city, rather than the city having to say, you know, please locate here, please put your headquarters here, we'll give you reductions, we'll give you tax breaks. We need to turn the tables on that. So if you are going to be part of our city, because actually our city has a goal, our city has a vision, of who we want to be. If you want to be pre-present in our city, we welcome you if you also are making the transformations that we held ourselves accountable to. So you need to show that you, as a company, selling products to our residents in our city, you are also putting in place the kinds of standards that we expect throughout global supply chains and that you can show transparently how you're sourcing from human labor, but also from places and that you're not destroying the ecology of the places where the materials are coming from. And then I think we're going to see policies, and, I, and I'm really impressed by, again, Marika's energy, taking the donut, saying, yes, come on, let's do this in Amsterdam. And actually, can we start turning the way the city reports on its metrics into metrics that reflect all of these four lenses, thriving people in a local thriving place, respecting the well-being of all people and the health of the whole planet. So at a very reporting level, which is not the most exciting place, right? How, how, what does a report look like? But let's change the statistical reporting of a city so that it doesn't just kick off always with, oh, this is what's happening with GDP. It kicks off with, what is the well-being of our people? What is the well-being of our ecology? And do we belong in the ecosystem of which we're a part? What is the well-being of people who we are connected to worldwide? And how are we bringing our city's impact back within the planetary boundaries? And that's the really big one in terms of High income cities in rich countries are living way over planetary boundaries. Amsterdam knows that and is addressing it, but it's true for every European city and nation. And it doesn't go away if you don't face up to it, it's there. So how do we massively reduce our carbon impact, our, our land footprint, our nutrient footprint, our use of fertilizers? We really need vibrant conversations in the city about how we're going to change our future. And that's not easy, right? And what I'm really excited about in Amsterdam is the creation of the Amsterdam Donut Coalition, which is a group of amazing change makers across the city, coming from community, neighborhood level, universities, entrepreneurs, 
social movements, and they're getting together and saying, you know, we all want to use this concept too. And so we're going to create a network of change makers, all sorts of organizations, and we are going to get together and start to make this happen. Let's put it into action. That's phenomenal that people within the city have chosen to pick that up. And it means that Amsterdam, more than any other city I can look to, has a really rich dialogue between a government, a city municipality that's saying we take on this model, and a movement of city change makers saying we're backing this model. And of course, it's going to bring up tough conversations about particular projects, about particular directions. Those conversations need to be had. And again, if you don't face them, they don't go away. They're just hit, pushed over by power. So I think Amsterdam is going to have some tough conversations, but these are the pioneering conversations all 21st century cities should be having. Thank you. And, and I've, Marika, I think one of those tough conversations, you, you talked about the need to look at social transition alongside the economic and the, and the ecological transition. The recent experience of the French government introducing measures to tackle climate change that weren't thought through properly backfired horribly. And I wondered how, as a city government, you feel Donut Economics offers the opportunity to act boldly and imaginatively at the scale the challenge requires, whilst also taking the population with you on that journey. So what Kate was saying is that actually uh, the people of Amsterdam are, are not just consumers of what the government is bringing. Uh, they can also be producers. They can be producers of their own energy, see the solar panels, that actually showing that actually you can, can make your own energy or you're the boss of your own energy if you make it yourself. We were imagining what the city would look like. And I said, I would see much more places where you can repair stuff. For example, if you look at now where we have our places where we put our waste. So that's the place where a person comes and they bring their old stuff and then it gets destroyed. In 10 years time, we are already working on it right now. So even more in, in a few years times, those places will be transformed in places where actually you can bring your old stuff. There will, will be a place where it can be repaired. There will be secondhand shops. There will be places where they can be taken apart and you can buy the small parts of it. And that's not only for the people of Amsterdam, but that could also be for the companies building the houses in Amsterdam, where there's actually a big place where they can bring let's say, the old parts of houses and other people can pick them up in order to use them again. So this will be something that actually you need much less money in order to have things. I think because you can, as Kate was saying, you can repair, you can recreate, you can reuse. As a city, we want to facilitate that for people to do it themselves. What we want to do to support people with lower incomes is that they are supported in isolating their houses so they will use less energy. And hopefully we can have those houses isolated by people who are out of jobs right now. Actually, right in this crisis, this is what we are doing. We are looking for ways how we can easily educate people to put solar panels on rooftops, people to install solar panels, to educate people to how to isolate houses in a very easy way, to either isolate your own house or to isolate the houses of other Others, which also brings you a job. So here we try to make the circle and saying we have people without a job right now who were 
You know, Amsterdam has been extremely dependent for their economics on tourists. And right now there's hardly any tourists. So we have a lot of people without a job and this won't come back in the next few years. So we want to see how can we re-educate people to work in the energy transition and to work especially on how can we make sure that people who have very little money don't have these large energy bills. So we're not going to support them by giving them money to use all this energy, but actually support them by using less energy. So that's one of the things how we try to bring this, this social needs together with the ecological needs of people. Fabulous. Uh, so a, quest, a question to you both. We're, we're currently, we hope, emerging from the COVID-19 crisis, but most likely into a world of great uncertainty and economic difficulty. As we saw in the UK government's announcement recently, hopes of a programme of Build Back Better have been sidelined with a narrative of just build, 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 a reversion to doing many of the worst things we did before, just more of them. What for you, apart from obviously the survival of our species, are the main arguments you would use with municipal and national governments as to why donor economics approach makes so much sense at this time? I want to pull back from this moment and just reflect back to the story that we believed of the 20th century, which was of this linear growth that countries and therefore cities could expect a sort of three and a half percent year on year. And so we were accumulating wealth, and then we were just learning to be more efficient. And if you're, if you're competitive, then you'll get ahead in that game. But the 21st century has begun in a very different way. It's not about smooth growth and efficiency. We have been hit by multiple shocks, uh, starting with financial crisis of 2008 for many, but in fact, it started earlier with food price crises in 2007. Cities and nations all over the world, extreme food price shocks. We are in the middle of a climate breakdown that is reverberating around the world, hitting cities rich and poor with hurricanes and droughts and floods. Now we have just emerging from or some countries going into COVID lockdown crisis. And we are seeing that all of these are exacerbated by sharp inequalities of gender and race of wealth and power and global north and global south. So the 21st century reality is that there are recurring shocks happening. It's not about a smooth story of growth. So how do you then change the way you work? And I think we have to think much more about resilience. And I'm not talking about Boris Johnson's idea of resilience when he said back, I think in January, February, oh, we might sort of take it on the chin. That's telling us, look, shocks are going to happen because this is how the system is. And you just got to buckle in and bear it. You know what? People can't buckle in and bear it. And actually the UK like the US, like Brazil, is seeing that when you have a leader who takes that approach, tens of thousands of people die. So we cannot buckle it. We can't bear resilience at the level of the individual. We need community level, national level, international level resilience. And the way we do that is coming back within planetary boundaries so that we aren't causing climate breakdown and shocks in the first place. We invest in health systems. We invest in long-term thinking about the kinds of shocks that might come and therefore what it means to be resilient to that. That means we have to focus, again, on not like let's create growth, which as Marika says, you get this ridiculous irony that it seems to show up in the price of expensive houses. Let's create livelihoods and let's ask ourselves what kind of livelihoods are deeply valued key workers and essential workers, whether they're doctors or shelf stackers or deliverers, has become really clear that these are actually work that's hugely valued by people when value comes to the fore. And let's respect those jobs and give people a decent 
living wage to do that work. So let's focus on creating livelihoods and exactly the kind of scheme Marika was just uh, talking about. How can we enable people to insulate their own houses or turn it into a a skill that they can now get into a new enterprise and do that because UK, we need like 27 million households need to have insulation installed so that they are not leaking energy in the most absurd way. Many new possible kinds of enterprises are going to be invented as we change this system. So focusing on people and livelihoods and local ownership and small scale and distributed systems rather than large scale, efficient, centralized systems. To me, that's going to be really key. Thank you. Marika? Okay, it's taking the words right out of my mouth because I think resilience on a regional level, so I think the city of Amsterdam in itself might be a, a bit too small to have a complete resilient city, uh, but I think we need it on a regional level and to make sure that we have much shorter supply chains uh, for food, for materials. You see how vulnerable we are with these fact that we mine products from all over the world and bring it to our country and then make something up and then export it again. It makes extremely vulnerable societies with only a few very, very rich people. And what we need to do is to make a whole society within this region. And that's not me saying we have to hide behind the dikes, as, as we say in the Netherlands, and see the floods everywhere and, and we are safe behind our dikes. I think to really have a supply chain, a shorter way within the region of Amsterdam, it makes us resilient so we can actually make sure that also our impact doesn't weigh very high on other parts of the world because the floods in other parts of the world are much higher than they are here. For me, it's really think globally, but act locally or or regionally because there's much more we can do around here that actually helps people make a decent living and at the same time not polluting the rest of the world or even our own environment. But it has to make sure that we change the idea of what wealth is. And wealth is actually that you're able to support yourself and support your your surroundings as a city, uh, but also as an inhabitant of the city. So in order to overcome the, the many crises that we have, I do think the donut model shows us how to do it because it's both related on thriving people and a, a healthy environment on a global level as much as on a local level. And we have to also redefine what we value. And I think that is something that you see with lots of people who have been hit by COVID, either for the isolation or really that they have been hit, like their loved ones have become sick or even died, is that we revalue things in a completely different way. We revalue our health, but also the health of our planet. We revalue social interaction because we couldn't do it for such a long time. So I do think Although the crisis is extreme and it has taken a large toll of people, it also shows us that the world we are living in right now doesn't really fit all our needs. And we have to revalue things and people are doing it. And I think that kind of recognition of other values and the need for healthy societies and the need for social interaction has become so much bigger that actually this helps us make the change that is needed to to become a stronger a more resilient and healthier city and uh, and world. Kate, just one one quick question for you. Amsterdam is is one city. How are you seeing the spread of this idea taking hold around the world? Where's next? Mm-hmm. What I have learned about how change happens 
has been really confirmed by what's happened in the last couple of months uh, as a result of Amsterdam saying, yeah, let's publish our city portrait. So I believe that one of the very powerful ways that change happens is that people are inspired by people like them, by their peers. So mayors are inspired by mayors and teachers are inspired by teachers and community activists are inspired by community activists and business leaders are inspired by business leaders. So what it takes is someone who's inspired by someone who's like them, but they're doing that thing that I thought was impossible, but look, they're already doing it. So when Amsterdam publishes its Donut City portrait on the 8th of April, saying, look, we may be in lockdown, we may be in the middle of crisis, but we're a city and we need to keep going and we need to keep forging a vision. So we're going to publish this. It came out and it had huge reverberations internationally. There was, a, there was an article about it in The Guardian that was kind of buried actually inside The Guardian pages, but it was shared over 20,000 times. And I wrote a little blog and said, if you're interested in doing this where you live, whether it's a city or a nation or a town, just fill in this form. We've had over nearly 500 responses to that form. People saying, we want to do this here, whether it's a nation or a town or a city. What's actually really delighted me was just last week, so in late June, the city of Copenhagen had a vote in their parliament, in their city parliament, and they said, we have passed a proposal to say, before the end of the year, we have to come up with a proposition of what it would like to have a financial and economic plan to turn Copenhagen into a donut city. And the first line of that proposition says, inspired by Amsterdam, we call on our city, right? There it is, there it is in action. It, I can stand and say all sorts of crazy things about donuts, but when a city that people admire and say, now that city's dynamic, when that city says, actually, we're gonna do this, it kicks off inspiration all over the world. So we've got Copenhagen now drawing up its own plan. And I, I love it that I found out about this on Twitter. I didn't have any conversation. I didn't lobby them. I, did, I didn't even know who did it. It's got it the life of its own. Academics and change makers in Barcelona saying, we're going to do this in Barcelona. In Costa Rica, there's an amazing initiative called Regenerate Costa Rica. They're saying, we want to turn our nation into one of the first regenerative countries in the world. And we're using the donut as the metric that we need to meet the needs of all in our country within the means of the planet. We need to come back within planetary boundaries. We're going to use this as our metric discussion of the ideas of doing this in Berlin. We've had interest from Liverpool, from Dublin, from Delhi, from Bangladesh, countries and places all over the world that are ready to do this. So for me, the fact that Amsterdam said, let's publish this, let's go for it. And it's not comfortable or easy, right? In Amsterdam city portrait, it says, oh, Amsterdam's port is the biggest importer of cocoa, which is coming from West Africa, which by the way, involves modern day slavery in the production. It's not a comfortable thing to publish. But again, it doesn't go away just because you don't publish it. All high-income countries and cities within them have these stories and have these histories. Are we going to face up to them and turn them around, or are we just going to bury it? Let's face up to it. So to me, Amsterdam's leadership here is huge, and it's opening up so much dynamic interest. We're actually just about to publish the methodology for how we created Amsterdam City's portrait, because we want to make it available to as many change makers as possible, make it as easy as possible for people to take, and you know what, they'll change it and adapt it and innovate with it in ways that we never saw possible. And that's the best thing that can happen to an idea. The question that we've explored here is what if every city used donut economics? I wonder if either of you just had any any final thoughts that I haven't asked you the right question to trigger in, in response to our, to our what if question that has framed our, our discussion today. 
One of the things that maybe comes up if, if you say like Amsterdam City has this left-wing government and this lefty idea and other people who live in, in the linear economy wouldn't be interested. I'm next to the deputy mayor of, of sustainability. I'm also working on uh, city development and urban development. So I'm responsible for the, the houses that are being built. And actually we put a lot of ambitions on when we send out tenders for builders to build our houses. And we see that actually as a city, if you say, this is where we want to go, we have a strong belief that you have to buy or build in a way that's more sustainable, that you have to build houses that can be renewed after some time and that you have to reuse stuff and that you have to have a building that actually doesn't cost energy, but that produces energy. And if we say that very loud and say it very clear, we see that builders from all over the Netherlands are coming to Amsterdam because they like it. They like the challenge. They just need to have this kind of very strong sense, like, okay, this is it. And this is not only some regulation that counts for me, but it also counts for everybody else. So it's level playing field. And it's something that the city of Amsterdam doesn't do just for five years, but this is kind of the way they are going. We see that many traditional parties are not scared of doing new things or doing things in a different way. As long as a government, you give a lot of clear direction in where we're going and level playing field to make sure that actually the regulation is for everybody. So I do think that by being clear, by showing a bright idea of where you want to go and how you want to go there and that you actually look at entrepreneurs as people you can work with instead of people that you have to tell things how to do it, then actually you can come a far away. And there's much more people wanting to work for a better world than we think about right now. There's a lot of people working within the traditional economies that are thrilled by the idea that you can deal it in a different way. So let's look for all the counterparts that are absolutely there and just wake them up. Wonderful. Thank you. And Kate, any last thoughts? Just to add to what Marika just said there. So I've always believed and, and seen evidence that change can happen when People are given a long, legal, loud message. So it's long as in this isn't just a policy for two or three years. This is, by the way, Amsterdam's policy to 2050 to be a circular economy. It's a legal message in that it's written into regulation. And as she says, it therefore applies to everybody. It's part of the new rules of the way we do things here. And it's a loud message. And it's just not like a 1% shift in things. It's a significant paradigm change. So when you get a long, legal, loud message, that means that entrepreneurs, businesses, builders, and others say, oh, things are moving. Now we need to move. By the way, we've had the capacity to do this for decades, right? There, there are best civil engineers, there are chemists, there are designers. They're sitting in our teams, probably chomping at the bit, desperate to do this kind of work. Some companies have invested for too long in lobbying against change, and they suddenly realize, take the lobbyists away. Let's just get on with this now. Hooray, we can actually move into this new design. I meet architects. I meet young designers all the time who are desperate to use the skills and the designs and the capabilities they have actually putting it into practice. And this kind of regulation and clear movement by a city means that they can actually start. Wonderful. Thank you both so much for joining me here today. This was so much fun. Thank you both. Thank you, Rob. It, it was a pleasure. Mm -hmm. 
And my thanks to Ben Adicott for theme music and production, to everyone who subscribes at patreon.com to make this podcast possible, and to you for listening. See you next time, and if this podcast has inspired what-if questions you'd like us to explore, please put them in the comments section below this podcast. See you next time. Thank you.